It's like the one child who shows up at the old folks' home where they all want to come up and, like, squeeze your cheeks and ask you how your day was going (laughs) and if you want a Werther's original. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Where Accountants Go, the accounting careers podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for the show. You're never going to believe this, but we have yet another accountant slash comedian on the program. I've been trying to chase down Greg Kite for a while now, and we were finally able to connect. Greg's a busy guy. He works full-time as a controller, which is enough to keep anyone busy. But he's also a comedian that gets asked to play host at many of the larger accounting-related conferences you hear about, such as ZeroCon, the Gusto Conference, and several others. He's a really down-to-earth guy, though, perhaps a little too down-to-earth, as I had to do some creative editing on this one. (laughs) But after all, he is a comedian, and a very funny one at that. I think you're really going to enjoy this particular episode On a serious note, as you listen to Greg's story, I think you'll notice that it's a great testament to how you really can make whatever dream you have come true if you're willing to put yourself out there and get involved so that the right people see you. That's exactly what Greg has done, and as you'll hear, it paid off for him. If you do enjoy and learn something from this episode, please let us know either by posting something on LinkedIn or whatever other social media platform you frequent or by shooting me a direct message. I always love hearing from our listeners. Truly, it warms my heart to know that the podcast is making a difference for people out there. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started. You're really going to enjoy this one. Here's Greg Kite. Well, hey, Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. I'm excited to be here and to impart all of my wisdom on you, which will take maybe 45 seconds, then we just have to stretch for the rest of your podcast. (laughs) I'm good at filler content. That's okay. That's okay. (laughs) Good. Perfect. (laughs) Well, for the audience, I can't believe it, but we have another accountant slash comedian on the program. I was able to connect with Greg Kite, and he is the announcer for the mind-numbingly repetitive commercials, and that's a quote, by the way, that you hear on another podcast, The Soul of Enterprise. It's one of my favorite shows. I listen to it all the time, and they have three commercials per hour with Greg's voice so many times that I seriously almost have memorized them, but that's because they're so funny. I just had to try to get Greg on the show, and we were finally able to get something old. He's a working accountant as well, so it really is fortunate that we were able to get him on the program. Well, Greg, I really do want to get down to the comedy and everything you're doing in the creative space, because I know that's an exciting part of the story, but we are a show about accounting careers and what that can lead to. So let's start with the early years. What led you to consider accounting as a possible career choice in the first place? Right. Well, that goes back to when I was like 15, actually. My mom owned a drugstore. She opened it when I was in, I think, seventh grade is when it was. And I feel horrible for my mom. It was one of those businesses that like everything fell apart almost immediately. She had some partners that were working with 50-50 partners, which that was a great lesson to learn firsthand from her is never be 50-50. Someone should always have a controlling vote. But yeah, she opened this drugstore. She and her partners split ways in very poor, there was no, very acrimoniously. And so uh, that day, I think it was during the summer between seventh and eighth grade. Yeah, that's what it was. And my mom was like, hey, you work here now and got me going on the cash register. 
in a very short period of time, I went from cashier to helping to do the books for her. And I really, really enjoyed doing the books. This was back, gosh, I'm old enough. So this was the mid 80s when I started doing the bookkeeping. So I had one of those big, the green 13 column analysis <laughs> pads. You know what I'm talking about with that, Mark? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> you dated and me then, a little you know, bit, too. The 10 keys where you'd have to add the whole column down and then add the whole column horizontally and then make sure everything tied out at the end. So I was doing that. But the crazy thing was I really, really liked it. So the bookkeeping from a mom's store was great. And that's when I started thinking, gosh, this is something that I enjoy, that I feel like I'm good at. And it started putting the idea of being an accountant in my brain. The funny thing was I also at the same time was kind of killing it in high school just with math. I scored a five on the AP test for calculus that kind of got me down the road. So when I got into college at the University of Washington, that's where I had to make a decision of if I wanted to pursue accounting or if I wanted to to pursue math education. And I chose to go down the math education route at that point. So the accounting was in my brain for a long time. I went down a different path to begin with, but it was always the plan B that I'd had for a long, long time. Interesting. You're a smart comedian. That's like awesome. (laughs) I don't know about that. Well, so I did teach math for 10 years. And one of the things that I had up on the wall, I had a big poster on the wall of my classroom that said it was the two universal laws of math. And law one was everyone makes mistakes at math. And law two was everyone forgets math. And I'm not above those laws myself. So it's crazy when my daughter needs some help with statistics. She's a senior in high school right now. And she's like, do you know how to do these problems? I'm like, I 100% did know how to do these problems. But at this point, I'd have to reteach myself before I could do anything for you with that stuff. That's funny. That's funny. I had forgotten that you were a teacher for 10 years. I looked at that stuff up earlier, but that is a long time. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about it. I mean, did you like it? Or what did you like about it? Because that's a long time, obviously. You liked it for a period of time, at least. The way I describe my time as a teacher is I liked the job, but I did not like the work. Especially with math, you have a lot of control, a lot of autonomy as a teacher. And so I was able to set up some structures for myself as a teacher where I made, after my first year, maybe my first couple of years, I had a lot of systems in place where I knew I just kind of had to show up at work, look at my binder to see where we were that day and go, okay, yeah, that's the lesson. And then I'd launch into it. So there wasn't a whole lot of prep I had to do. The hours were great. I loved being done with work by 3.30 in the afternoon every day was great. It was really a job for me that I could leave at work because I wasn't like the English teachers or the history teachers who had to pour over essays or anything like that. It was pretty straightforward, even doing the grading kind of stuff. So it was an easy job. And I did enjoy the actual teaching portion of it, being up in front. I felt like I excelled in that. Actually, one of the years that I was there, kind of near the end, I got a teacher of the year award, which was very nice to receive. But I didn't really like the work besides just being up front and and helping the kids understand the stuff. There's a whole lot to being a teacher besides just the transfer of knowledge. One of the things that was frustrating is you can't scientifically measure the transfer of knowledge. So it was difficult to know if you were being effective as a teacher. I felt like I was. All indicators seemed to say I was, but I didn't like the fact that 
it was hard, you know, if I gave a kid a failing grade, did he really not know the stuff? If I gave the kid an A, was he really top of the class? So that was one thing I didn't like. And then there was all the majority of the math teaching. I did two years in high school and eight of those years were in middle school. And so dealing with middle school kids, I felt like it was actually funny. I couldn't really lean into my sense of humor because what I found out quickly is that if the teacher starts joking around with a bunch of 13-year-olds, then they immediately go, oh, we're not working, we're playing, I get it, and then they're impossible. So a lot of it, I felt like being a teacher was just, I was being paid to be a jerk to prepubescent children, or I guess more, anyways, 13-year-olds. So yeah, it definitely was not a passion that I had being a teacher. I can see how you'd like the performance aspect, but yeah, you just need a more mature audience. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and it was funny, especially in middle school. I decided that nobody was failing the class because they were too dumb to know the math. Any of my kids who weren't doing it, they just weren't motivated to put in the time or put in the effort or to go after it hard enough to understand it. But then there was someone with the higher end classes, the more gifted classes that I taught. You had kids who were very disciplined. They were focused. They did have the motivation, wherever that came from. And for those few classes, I remember a few fondly where they were mature enough to let me goof around for them and they responded appropriately and it didn't derail the whole class for the rest of the week. So it wasn't torture, but I wasn't hitting on all cylinders emotionally and spiritually as a teacher. Okay. Well, I figured, yeah, that long, there were definitely some things you liked about it. So take us into your transition into accounting to plan B, I guess. (laughs) How did that? Right. And the interesting thing was, is, yeah, when you talk about how long it was, it wasn't because I loved it. It was because I didn't think it was possible to have a redo at that point. It was fairly early on in my teaching career that I was aware it was probably the wrong choice, but I'd already invested five years of my life getting there, getting my bachelor's in math, and then I took a year or two off, and then I got my teaching certification after that. And at that point, I was married and with family on the way. You just feel like you get to a point where it's like, I don't think I can retrain myself for a giant career shift professionally. You can pivot. Pivoting's easy, but an absolute, let's burn this house down and let's start building a new one. That feels like it's just impossible to do it. But just over time, I just got to the point where I was like, you know what, this is not where I want to be. This is not how I want to go. The other problem, and I've even, you know, it might be hard to describe in words. You've seen the little two by two matrices that kind of help make decisions. I made one of those where it was like on the one axis, It was like you enjoy a job or you don't enjoy a job. And the other axis was you get paid well or you don't get paid well. And the problem with teaching was I didn't really enjoy it and I didn't really get paid well. So it was kind of like, why stick with this? There's got to be some upside to it. So the (laughs) dream of home ownership seemed like it was slipping through my fingers. Those sorts of things motivated me to make the pivot to actually start pursuing a degree in accounting. And man, I'll tell you what, the other thing I didn't realize is the second time you're back in school, and I was a good student the first time getting my math degree, I was a good student. My GPA was somewhere in the 3.3, 3.4, something like that. But going back, man, you just have all sorts of different tools and motivation and you know yourself a little better and how you learn. And man, I killed it. It was not nearly as rigorous as I was afraid that it might be to go back and get another bachelor's. Yeah, you're a whole lot more serious about it that second time. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. different motivations. So right. was it difficult to get your first accounting job? Actually, not. it was very straightforward. It kind of landed in my lap because here's the other thing that happened with this whole thing. So I'm in my, let's see, I was 36 when I went back to get the accounting degree and I finished the accounting degree when I was 38. So I'm sitting here going, okay, I'm at least 10 years, at least 10 years behind everybody else who's where I am career-wise. Probably more like, what, 38? Probably more like 14 years behind everybody else who's just starting as an accountant. So I knew that I had to make a massive amounts of ground that other people had on me to get anywhere in this profession in a reasonable amount of time, given my age. So there was two things I did to make up that ground. One of them is I chose to read the Journal of Accountancy. So I I got a student membership to the AICPA. I got a student membership to the Utah Association of CPAs. I live in Utah. And I got the membership for the AICPA first. And the only thing I figured out that was a benefit of being a member of the AICPA as a student is you got the Journal of Accountancy every month. So the first thing I did is I said, okay, I'm going to read through the Journal of Accountancy cover to cover every single month, even if I have no clue what they're talking about. So I forced myself to do that for, I think, four years. I did that every single month. And then the other thing I did, getting involved with the UACPA, with the Utah Association, they had just a local chapter in the county where I I live. And I started going to their monthly, it was basically a lunch and learn that they had a one CPE credit hour lunch that you could go to. So I paid my 20 bucks a month to go to that. That's how I landed the job. So big story to answer your question. I landed the job because I was the one student who was show, even though I was in my mid late thirties, when I was doing it, I was the one student who showed up at these luncheons. And it's like the one child who shows up at the old folks home where they all want to come up and like squeeze your cheeks and ask you how your day was going. (laughs) And if you want a Werther's original, so just showing up to your state society lunch, that was my key. And I got to meet people at local firms because it was all just local. We had a couple of big size of large local firms who were basically ran that chapter. So I got to know people in both of those firms very well. And when I was graduating with my accounting degree, I basically just got a job offer from one of those firms saying, hey, we want you to come work over here in our technology services department. And I was like, that sounds wonderful. I would love to do that. That is awesome. A large part of our audience is earlier on in their career or looking for the first job and maybe students. So that's, it's wonderful to hear a story of how that actually worked out. <laughs> you yeah. know, that's yeah. awesome. Seriously, I mean, if you're going to spend $500 on a suit to do your interviews or instead you could redeploy those $500 to go to the monthly luncheon for your local chapter of your state society, I think the latter is probably the better investment of your money. And the crazy thing was, is people were so excited that students were showing up for these that I'm pretty sure at one point, one of the firms just started covering my tab too. They were like, bill us for kite, that kind of thing. But yeah, that was the inroad. Very effective. I was surprised. I wasn't expecting that, but that was very nice. (laughs) That is cool. So I confess when I was trying to get connected to you to do this podcast, initially, I didn't realize you were still a working accountant. Uh I knew that you must be doing some speaking or something like that, but it wasn't until, yeah, I just did a little more research. So I guess take us up through that time to now, because you're the controller 
for a, some organization now, right? A medical organization? <laughs> yeah. So there's a group of medical office buildings that I work for. And okay. yeah, the best way to say it is I'm the controller and the building manager for those properties. So the storyline goes like this. So I got that job straight out of college. It was when I finished my undergrad before I started my master's program. So I wasn't even like CPA exam ready when they hired me. I was with that firm for a year. And the interesting thing was too, is I left the job I didn't like. I started working at this firm and it was kind of the flip side of stuff. I really liked the work, but I didn't like the job at the firm. So, I mean, I love just getting deep into into clients' accounting records, cleaning them up, helping them implement a new accounting system. I really enjoyed all that stuff. But the message I got back repeatedly from the firm was that I was just way too slow. And so I was ruining their, uh, you know, too many write downs on my engagement. And that really came with a beat down. I mean, there's no malice with anybody at the firm, but there was just all these pressures, I think, financial pressures for the partners that would just kind of trickle down to, like I said, where it felt like I was kind of getting the beat down. Even though I was the new guy, they hired me to do QuickBooks implementation, even though I was very upfront with them that I'd never even opened the program before. So there was a big learning curve I had to go up there. So I wasn't enjoying that job, but there was one engagement that I did really enjoy working on that engagement. So when I was approaching the end of my first year, because like I think all states, you need to have a one-year experience under the direct supervision of a CPA to be able to become a CPA yourself. So as I was approaching the end of that first year, I started having a conversation with the company that I really enjoyed the engagement with. And we worked out a thing where I was able to leave the accounting firm and go work for them right at the end. And actually, it was really funny because I timed it to where I gave, because like I said, I knew I needed one year of experience and one year of experience was 2000 hours. And so I basically gave my notification, it gave my two weeks notice when I knew I not just have my 2000 hours, but I'd have a little padding, but I wasn't quite there yet. So I was like, during this two weeks, I will cross my 2000 hour threshold. And so I give my two weeks notice. And like the very next day, the guy who hired me away from the firm called the managing partner at the firm. He was like, hey, let's stop screwing around. I want Kite to start now. You know, you don't really need him for the next two weeks. So just cut him loose and let me have him. And I had to go like, oh, no, wait, 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 no, not yet. (laughs) And so I did like the math to go, okay, on Tuesday, at 11.30 a.m., accomplish, I will clock my 2,000 hours, so they let me go that day. So I ended up working for 2,003 hours at that accounting firm. And even that day, it was like lunchtime, and I'm going, so am I coming out back after lunch, or am I, I am coming? Okay, so I'll see you after, okay, I'll see you after lunch. I'll be back. So I started working at the group of medical office buildings. They had no professional accountants as part of their organization. They were paying around $100,000 a year to the CPA firm for their services. So the whole play there was hire me in and I will save you. The amount of work I can do in-house will save you enormously to where you'll actually be ahead from what you've been paying the the accounting firm because they were doing everything from reconciling bank statements to everything else. So there was nothing going, they were outsourcing all of it at that point. So that was my play to get in. And then over time, over the last 10, it's, well, actually, let's see. I was a teacher for 10 years. I was at the accounting firm for one year and I've been at this job for 11 years, 
pushing 12 years at this job. Just over the 12 years, I've been able to span my role from just accountant, like I said, to building manager, which means I basically do the business function, not the physical maintenance function for these physical properties. So it's basically commercial real estate, but specifically medical commercial real estate and doing the accounting on the back end and a lot of the management for all of our investors and owners and occupants. Okay. Beautiful. So at what point did you get into comedy? And I saw something about comedy CPE as well. So I guess, how did yeah. all that enter in? <laughs> well, okay. So that loops all the way back to being a teacher. So like I said before, when I was a teacher, I didn't feel like any of my students who were struggling with math, I didn't feel like they were struggling because they were too dumb to get the concepts. It's middle school math but I felt like they were struggling with motivation. So with some of my lower end classes, I started doing what I call the Motivation Mondays, where we didn't really do, we didn't work on math per se, but instead what we did is basically, I was trying to say, hey, what do you really want to do with your life? And then the follow-up question was, if you're awesome at math, is that going to help you achieve that goal or is that going to hinder you from achieving that goal? And without question, Whatever you wanted to do, whether it was if you wanted to be the next Tony Hawk skateboard wizard or you wanted to be a musician or if your goal was to be a homemaker, all of those things, math is only going to help you be even better. It's going to give you a leg up in all those fields. But what I found out doing those, doing that with my students is when you can't ask people like over and over and over again, what do they really want to do with their life without realizing oh, I'm a middle school <laughs> math teacher. This maybe isn't the, you know, and they're like, oh, I want to be a professional football player. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess really junior high math teacher wasn't on my vision board growing up. But what was, and comedy, comedy had been. And, you know, I'd had little sort of forays into public speaking. Public speaking that for me, when those were most successful is when I really lead into just my sense of humor and was able to kill. So I basically turned a lot of public speaking opportunities that I had, whether that was in high school or college or in different organizations that I was part of. And I was like, okay, stand-up comedy is something I want to do. So at that point, I was like, okay, I can't just tell these kids that they got to go after what they really want to do. I've got to do that myself. So I took my own medicine. I started doing stand-up when I was a high school teacher. And then the interesting thing was when I was at the junior high, I started doing announcements. Like I would do some of the announcements and even go over news. I was basically trying to do like an opening monologue for a late night show and we'd record it and play it as part of the announcements for the students. And I think it was a bomb. Like actually, a lot of students would come up to me and go, man, nobody in my homeroom understands any of your jokes, dude, but I get them and I think they're hilarious. And I was like, oh, so really you're saying nobody laughs at this stuff? that I do. Anyway, so so with that, I started going to clubs. I started getting those chops as well. But I was doing the stuff at work as well. When I started working for the accounting firm, like I said, I was still reading the Journal of Accountancy religiously every month. And I asked the partner who was in charge of staff meetings if I could open all the staff meetings by doing five to seven minutes of material from the Journal of Accountancy for the staff meeting. And that was sort of my grand entrance into accounting comedy was doing that. I'm sorry, you were doing bits out of the Journal of Accountancy. I did, yeah, and they were good. I still use some of them today. Like in my act at my show, I can't even remember what the main art. No, no, I do. I absolutely remember. Here's a couple of them. And this is even the bit that I do. I say, so I read this article about the historic credit fund 
tax case, and I read this entire article on this historic credit fund tax case because that was the headline, that it was this historic credit fund tax case. But it took me to the end of the article to realize that the name of the defendant was historic credit fund. It wasn't a historic case, but it was a very incredibly boring case. But I read the article because I thought it was something that was like going to change the way that I saw a tax law because it was such a historic case, which really ticked me off that I wasted my time reading this article. But what it did do is it gave me a dream. And that dream is to start my own company. And I'm going to call my company Ridiculous Abuse of Power, and we'll be organized as a C corporation, we'll never pay any taxes, and the IRS will find out, and they will sue me, and we will lose that case horribly, but it will all be worth it just to read the headline that reads, IRS wins case with ridiculous abuse of power. (laughs) So yeah, and then there's another bit, actually, so I used to do that in my stand-up routine. There's another bit that's like a bit that I'm almost known for here in Utah, is I read an article about how the IRS needs to do more firearms training with their agents. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that IRS agents even had guns. And that makes me realize that I made a great career choice by not choosing to be in the IRS because I would have spent all my time trying to think up awesome things to say when I popped the cap in a tax evader's bum bum. And now I'm realizing I can't really get into the joke because there's a lot of swears involved in this joke that (laughs) you'd have to bleep out or just completely remove that story from the podcast. I get very profane with that. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you. That is too funny. Oh, my gosh. So do you do, well, I saw comedy CPEs. Are you doing live stand-up CE now? Is that previous to COVID, I guess? Okay. So my million-dollar business idea that I thought was going to be so fun and so lucrative that it would pull me away from my day job working for my medical office buildings was comedy CPE. And my idea was this, was that I knew that people would pay somewhere around 25 bucks or more per hour for live continuing education. But I've been to those, and they're horrible. And so my idea was if I could do live CPE at a comedy, so I would go around the country, I would rent out a comedy club during business hours, and I would promote it as comedy CPE. People would come to the comedy club. And I did this once in Seattle at the Comedy Underground. I made this all work out. And even the club, they didn't even make me rent it out because I got a sponsor And the sponsor bought two free drinks for everyone who came to the CPE. So it was a two-hour CPE on, I think it was on fraud. And it was like, how is this not going to win? You spend 25 bucks or 50 bucks. I can't remember how much I charged. Maybe it was 50 bucks to come to a two-hour CPE. You get free drinks and it's awesome. And it's at least, it's probably cheaper than a lot of the CPE that you get. Otherwise, NAS was certified. We had all that stuff going on. It was a brilliant idea. And I launched that idea right when everyone stopped going to live CPE. This was probably, gosh, seven years ago, seven or eight years ago. And right when online CPE was starting to take off and people were like, why would I fight traffic and try to find a parking spot to go to a comedy club when I can just sit here on my butt and get some? And a lot of the online stuff is even free is what you're finding. So that ended up being a great idea that died a very, very swift death. But Over time, I've been able to modify that. So Comedy CPE, I regularly do webinars for different people. I did a series of them that I partnered with Zero 
to do those. Currently, I've been doing a series of webinars with Gusto. The vast majority of that stuff is hosted on CPA Academy. So if you need some continuing education, hop on CPA Academy. As a matter of fact, next week, I've got a fraud webinar that I'm doing on October 20th at 10 a.m. So yeah, a week from today is that. So I do a monthly webinar with Gusto, and we're at least doing those through the end of 2020. So I've got fraud red flags next week. Next month, we're doing fraud, like the main characteristics of people who perpetrate fraud. And then in December, we're doing a two-hour ethics CPE class. So yeah, I still do all that stuff. It's opened up some stuff under the general umbrella of Comedy CP. I've been able to host some different conferences and things like that. The main conferences that I've just been like, I've based an MC for have been ZeroCon. I did that for four ZeroCons in a row, which was great for the Zero America. And then for the last 10 years, I've been doing stuff with the Thrival CPA Network. They have an annual conference out in Greenville, South Carolina. And so I do the podcast with Jason Blummer, who ran that, and I've been doing their conferences every year for, like I said, 10 years. So there's a lot of stuff that I've been able to do kind of under the larger comedy CPE umbrella. So, hey, how did you end up recording the mind-numbingly repetitive commercials for <laughs> Soul of Enterprise? And they are. Oh, my right. gosh. I Really, oh, when they come on, yeah. I start to mouth them because they just, yeah, <laughs> I hear them yes. all the time. Okay. Pop some popcorn and strap in because it's a longer story than you might think. So go all the way back to that one year that I was at the local accounting firm and I was doing those five to seven minute sets to start off the staff meetings. While I was there, I started writing these letters to the editor into the Journal of Accountancy while I was there. I think I did all of three, and one of them actually got published. The one that got published was it was a letter that I sent in that was about like all the acronyms that we had in the accounting profession, but there was a lot of different ways. This was back when IFRS started, the International Financial Reporting Standards, and some people called it IFRS, some people called it IFRS. There was no consensus on how you pronounce all of these acronyms. So basically, the idea was I said we needed to start a standard-setting board that was over the pronunciation of the different acronyms in the accounting profession. And anyways, I was pleased as punch that they published all of it except the organization. So I offered, I said, we need to start this standard-setting body for the acronyms, and I gave this really long name for the organization that I pitched. And the last thing I said is, now all we need is an acronym to use for that organization. And if you went back and looked at the name that I proposed – the acronym would have been SMART, and that was a little too edgy for the Journal of Accountancy, so they left that paragraph out, but they ran the rest of it. So then a later letter to the editor that I wrote to the Journal of Accountancy, there was an article in there about, oh, shoot, what is it, Six Sigma and the black belt. Six Sigmas are black belts is what you get certified on it with Six Sigma. And, and I can't even remember what my jokes were with my letter to the editor there, but I emailed it in one day. And then like the next day, I get a call from Ed Kless. And he was like, hey, this is Ed Kless. And I was calling you about the letter to the editor that you just sent into the AICPA. And I was like, oh, awesome. You must be from the AICPA. And he was like, no, I'm not from the AICPA. But they read your letter. And their immediate response was that Ron Baker put you up to, oh, no, 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 forget it. That wasn't even how it worked. It wasn't Ed Kless. I met Ed Kless later. It was Ron Baker himself who called me. It was the man himself. And he was like, they emailed me and were like, hey, Ron, 
what did you do to put this guy up? Because I guess the Sig Sigma and lean accounting and efficiency is one of the things that Verisage and Ron Baker is not just rails against. And so he's like, you put this guy up to send him this letter, didn't you? And he was like, nope, but I need to get a hold of him. So Ron contacted me directly. We started a friendship at that point. It was about a year after that where he invited me to come to the biannual Verisage Symposium. I did not belong there, but it was a bunch of incredibly intelligent people talking about a bunch of really interesting things about how the profession should change. And not just Verisage and Ron Baker are known for value pricing, but I'll tell you what, the stuff that they do is really expansive and it really goes into all the different ways that CPA firms should be running their business better. And it was very interesting and I'm really good at a party. So before that symposium was over, they actually extended an offer for me to become a fellow of the Verisage Institute, which is what Ron, that's the institute that Ron founded and Ed's been obviously an integral fellow and a participant in that. And then they started their online radio program. And after about six months, they took all of their episodes, they sent them to some service that will transcribe the episodes that'll write them down. And then they basically edited the transcript and packaged it as a book and wanted to start selling the book. And they asked me if I would write the foreword for their book that really wasn't a book, that was really their podcast that people could still listen to for free online. So they were selling something that they shouldn't be able to sell. So I gladly accepted it. I wrote the foreword to that book, and I'm incredibly proud of that foreword. But if people don't know my relationship with Ron and Ed, I come off like an absolute jerk because I'm just trashing them the whole time about how they're trying to bamboozle them buying this book that people shouldn't buy, but somehow it does have value. So I wrote the foreword, and then they said, we want to start promoting it on the show. Would you mind recording a advertisement that we could run on the show? And I go, great, thinking that they'll run it maybe a once a month. And I didn't know that they'd start running it three times a show every week and the exact same commercial. And they did that for years where they ran that exact same commercial. Ed contacts me. This was maybe a year or two ago. And he goes, hey, we started a Patreon account so that people can be be patrons of our show and get something special for that. And so what we offer for our patrons is we offer a commercial-free experience of our podcast. And we've actually been plugging it as If you're sick of hearing Greg Kite, you should donate money to our Patreon, and then we'll stop playing the commercials that we asked Greg to make for our show to sell our book. So I was like, okay, that's both insulting and hilarious. So I then recorded not one, because now I knew what was going on. I recorded three different radio spots that are similar but slightly different that goes on about how you can, you know, are you tired of listening to me? Yeah, so am I because I listen to this podcast too. And if you want out, you got to go donate to their Patreon. So like I said, long story to get to that, but that's how I ended up doing those ads for them. But again, I think those ads, especially the new ones, because I did, I don't listen to that podcast a lot because I can't, I don't have a good enough self-esteem to listen to myself that much. But I did, John Garrett, our friend who introduced us, he was on their show not too long ago because John just came out with a book. And I listened to that episode, actually even crashed that episode. I was a caller and I called in and I was, yeah, very belligerent. But I listened to my three commercials again and I was like, not too bad, Kite. Those commercials came out okay. 
I know for $5 I can get the ebook, but for only $10 a month, I can, <laughs> I never have to listen to Greg Kite again. Exactly, so. exactly. Yep, that's the thing. So, like I said, they're horrible if you listen to Ron and Ed's show every week. But if you only pop in a few times a year, they're pretty good. Say, only, yeah, no, that's thing. If you're not a patron of their show, just drop in maybe once a quarter, just infrequently enough to forget what I'd said. Then it'll be entertaining again. Hey, for the record, so I was listening to that, and I honestly thought that Lou Holtzman was calling in to talk to John for a few seconds. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that's was, pretty that Im- was hilarious. Pretty impressive that John got Lou Holtz to write his foreword. That's unreal. His, yeah, best of luck and best of success to him and to his book. It sounds like it's really taken off, so that's awesome. Yeah, actually, and I don't think he listens to the show, but with you on the show, he might listen to this one. He really did a great job on that book. Yeah. It's, seriously, yeah. it's well done. Yeah. Well, hey, I know you're on sort of your lunch break, and, and I want to make sure we get you off in time. I do end every show with the same three questions, so let me get to those. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? so far. And you know that it's funny because it's hard to identify a single proudest moment. I would say one of the things that I'm incredibly proud of was that in, I think it was in 2012 and 2013, I was included in Accounting Today's list of the top 100 most influential people in accounting. I will be the first to say that I did not belong on that list. I was more, for those two years, I was maybe Accounting Today's, Accounting Today's top 100 most interesting people in accounting, but I don't think I was really that influential. I was doing a lot of blogging and I was doing tons of tweeting accounting jokes through my Twitter feed. And I used accounting today for most of the setups for the Twitter jokes that I did. So I think they maybe it was just payback for me every day plugging three of the daily articles that accounting today came out with. But regardless, super honored to be part of that. But that was a huge thing. I'm very honored and I'm very proud of the fact that I have Ron Baker's cell phone number and that I could call him right now and chances are he'd pick up. I'm super proud of that. But maybe the thing that I'm the most proud of is there was about a year. So I blogged for goingconcern.com for a bunch of years and I kind of moved away from that. And then I got this wild hair to start doing accounting cartoons. So I started just drawing them just for myself. And like I said, I was going to blast them out through my own Twitter channel. And after doing just a couple of them, I was like, hmm, I wonder if somebody buy these and like pay me to do them. So I contacted accounting today and they were a hard pass. And then I went back to going concern and said, Hey, would you guys want to pay me to run these on going concern? And they were like, yeah, no. And then like a week later, they called me back. I was like, actually on second thought. Yeah. So I think maybe the cartoon and I've actually stopped doing that since it's probably been about a year since I've done any new cartoons for them, but it's kind of a testament to the idea that if you find a niche, and my niche being the intersection of comedy and accounting, and if you really establish your position well within that niche, that you can just do some weird and stupid stuff that you're not really qualified to do and still be successful. I have tons of creative people who are way more artistically talented who have been doing cartoons or cartoon type stuff for years and years, it would be their dream to be paid to crank out a cartoon once a month. And they just do it. They just keep doing it just for the love of drawing the stuff. And I was able to started for that. But then the fact that I was able to monetize it and that I was pretty proud of, of a lot of those cartoons that came out, I think they still stand up. 
today. And as a matter of fact, I'm probably going to post one. I'm going to post a few this month. I got some good Halloween ones, and I got another good one for the October 15th tax deadline. So I'd say probably the cartoon is probably the most proud. That is cool. That is a pretty narrow niche where accounting crosses comedy. So that's... Yeah, but awesome. I tell you what, I mean, what are you talking about? Some of the stuff that Verisage really hammers on in terms of being successful as an accounting firm or as an accountant or whoever you are, if you don't find a niche, that's the starting point. Find that and then just really hunker down on it. And it's weird. Like, it's been weird to me how many doors have been opened up because of that. That is awesome. Well, second question, tell us about a lesson you learned the hard way. And the more you can tell us about the situation, of course, because that's how we learn. Right. Well, I'd say there's two that come to mind. One, basically, we already covered it. I spent 10 years as a teacher and wasn't really being fulfilled in my role as a teacher. And the fact that it took me 10 years for the pain to build up to the point where it's like, I got to just get out of this profession, I waited too long. And like I said, part of it was just the lesson I learned was you can do it. You can go back to school. You can successfully retool yourself even when you're whatever age you are. That's available to you and you can be highly successful in your new field even if you're a late entrant into it. So that was one I learned the hard way and the hard part of that was the time that I spent in the place that didn't really blow my skirt up. But another hard lesson that I learned was after I left the accounting firm and started working for the group of medical office buildings, that accounting firm still did like the tax work and the review work. We actually, I guess we were just doing a compilation at that point, but they still were the provider of the accounting services for my company. And I didn't really like the fact that the firm, it didn't feel like, you know, because I was still just low man on the totem pole in that firm when I took this new job. And they didn't treat me as a customer, not like I wanted anything massive, but I was like, no, you've got to understand. The biggest thing I think was this, was our company had been a cash cow for them. My play to get hired away by this company was, hey, if you hire me, your fees are going to be reduced with your accounting firm by a ton. The accounting firm, not so excited that their fees would be reduced. So they didn't really want to have conversations with me about how I could start doing more and more of the work that they had been doing in-house. And I was like, okay, I've got two choices. I can either burn this relationship to the ground and rebuild it with that accounting firm that I used to work for, or alternately, I could move our business from that large local firm to the other large local firm in our city who actually coincidentally did a lot of the accounting for a lot of the doctors who were in our building, who were owners in our building. So there were some other reasons why that makes sense. So I decided to do the latter and switch our business from the old accounting firm that I used to work for to another accounting firm. Doesn't seem like a big deal, but the lesson I learned was this, was if the managing partner of the firm that you quit has to sign off on your 2,000 hours to get your CPA license, don't move your accounting services from that firm to another firm before that managing partner signs off on your 2,000 hours because he did not give me my 2,000 hours. It was like tooth and nail. He was like, well, I was part of the committee. He was really upset with the whole thing. He was like, I was part of the committee with the state who came up with that regulation, and we meant billable hours, not just hours. And I was like, I don't think that's true. He was like, it is. I'll send the hours into the state, but I'm going to say what the different hours were, what, how much was billable, how much was non-billable, and stuff like that. I'm like, okay, cool. But man, he was not. So just this, don't burn a bridge if you still need something from the guy who's the king of the other side of that, of that bridge. <laughs> I could just see, he's like, are you sure you didn't take a long lunch that last day? Because that would have edged up. You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> right, right. Well, and it was funny because there was multiple people at the company I worked for who I told them, I'm like, I, I want to make the switch and we'll do it now. And they were like, are you sure you want to do that? If the guys still have to sign off in your eyes, I'm going, yeah, they're not going to be like that. They're cool. And then I quickly realized that there was a lot more at stake, but understandably so, because like I said, even with the reduction of the scope of the work that they did for my company, there's still some big ticket items because we have a very complicated tax return and that they charge a lot for it. So they were losing some big dollar business. And if your decisions start affecting somebody's wallet, that's a good way to get them to where they're not big fans of you. (laughs) That is a good lesson. Thank you for sharing that. Last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Again, that's a hard one to boil down for like best advice because some of the things that came to mind was like, do or do not. There is no try. I can't remember who I heard that from. There's another one that was like, get busy living or get busy dying. Again, I can't remember exactly where that one came from, but I would say the best piece of advice, it's more that I've gleaned from different sources over time is that you're responsible, like with any kind of performance, whether that's stand-up comedy for me, or whether it's at work, or whether it's with the cartoons that I did, or with the commercials that I did for Ron and Ed, whatever you're doing, you're 100% responsible for the effort that you put into it and for the quality of the performance performance defined very broadly. You're 100% responsible for your effort and for your performance. But after you do that and you send it out into the world, whether that's with a client, whether that's with an audience at a comedy club, whether that's through a podcast that you're doing, once you've done your best and you've given it the proper amount of effort and you put it out there, after that, you're 100% not responsible for how successful it gets after it's out of your hands. And it's almost like a Buddhist idea. I'm pretty sure that's where I've gotten it from. There, I think there's some lines of thought within Stoicism from ancient Greek, Greece that really line up with that as well. So it's kind of a confluence of those two ideas. But it's the idea that, yeah, give it your all. Try everything that you can. Be as smart as you can. Work as smart as you can. Work as hard as you need to get things to where they need to be. But then once it's done, don't let it keep you up at night. Just go, this. I sent it out into the world, and whatever comes back to me is just what's going to come back to me. And then hit it again the next day and give it your all and make sure it's your best performance again. That is great advice because we accountants, we can be perfectionist and very self-critical. Yeah. Yeah. That is really is good advice. I think even for your audience, that's good. I mean, if a lot of people who listen to this, if they're going out and applying for jobs, do all of your interview prep and things like that. But at some point, the time's up. You got to go. You got to have the interview. Do it the best that you can. But then after it's done, just go, that's all I can do. And at some point, that's all you can do. And it's just left up to other people's hands. And don't kill yourself if it's not coming back right. Like I said, hit it again the next day. If you don't get that job, hit it again the next day. So, Very true. Very, thank you. Thank you. Well, seriously, thank you for taking the time for this because I know you're a busy guy and I really was hoping to get you on the show. So I appreciate you sharing your time with the audience. Of course. I was very pleased to do it. It's fun to do
Well, that was my interview with Greg Kite, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did recording it. Greg is really a funny guy and a smart guy. I really enjoyed speaking with him. It's not often that I get to interview an accountant slash comedian, so those are always really refreshing episodes. If there's anything I can personally do for you in your own career, please don't hesitate to reach out. I'm very findable on LinkedIn. All you have to do is search for Mark Goldman CPA. Shoot me a direct message through there. Or of course, if you come to our website, feel free to contact me through there as well. Very easy to find. And I'm always happy to help with any career questions that you have. Thank you again for joining us. This has been Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for the show. And as I always say, we'll see you next week. There's more to come.